You are listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. To be short or not to be short, that is the question. Is treatment of idiopathic short stature with growth hormone, medicine, or cosmetic endocrinology? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is Dr. Myron Janelle. Dr. Janelle is Professor Emeritus of Pediatrics at Yale University School of Medicine. He was Director of Pediatric Endocrinology from 1971 to 1985. Dr. Janelle received the 2004 Joseph W. St. Jean Award, one of the highest honors in academic pediatrics, and was the recipient of the Abraham Jacoby Memorial Award from the American Academy of Pediatrics. In June 2006, he was appointed to the Health and Human Services Secretary's Advisory Committee on Human Research Protections. Today we are discussing controversies in growth hormone usage for idiopathic short stature, who to treat, when to treat, and why to treat. Welcome, Dr. Janelle, and thank you for joining us at the Clinician's Roundtable. Thank you. Thank you. Is idiopathic short stature a disease or a disability warranting treatment? Well, certainly not a disease. I, I think it's a, it's a statistical diagnosis. I mean, idiopathic uh, short stature defines children who fall below an arbitrary uh, cutoff point uh, on the growth charts, uh, usually uh, below the third percentile or probably more accurately, at least as defined, uh, agreed to by the Food and Drug Administration, less than uh, two standard deviations uh, from the mean for age or really below the 1.25 percentile. What it indicates, though, is that it's idiopathic in that other causes of short stature uh, or growth failure have been excluded, and that is the fly in the ointment, because uh, uh, we keep uncovering new and more sophisticated uh, explanations for some problems in growth. It also depends on exclusion of what would be defined as growth hormone deficiency, and uh, while classic growth hormone deficiency is, uh, is, is, is recognizable, it is not as we often categorized uh, it uh, 30 years ago, uh, all-or-nothing phenomenon. In other words, you don't have children who either are growth hormone deficient or who are not growth hormone deficient. Uh, and there are, in fact, there's no other endocrine disorder that operates that way. Uh, there are variations along a spectrum. The difficulty is defining those youngsters who may, may well make some growth hormone, who but who do not make enough. And that is a very, very qualitative term. What is enough? Uh, and uh, we've had some excellent uh, results with the uh, increased availability of growth hormone in children who have deficiencies of growth hormone in terms of improving their growth. The uh, difficulty that came up is when a number of observers and parents identified youngsters who were growing just as poorly, but who, when tested, appeared to make normal amounts of growth hormone. And the question was, well, I mean, if you treat so-and-so because they are uh, two or three standard deviations below the mean for age with growth hormone and they improve, uh, well, why can't you treat Johnny? Just because he happens to make uh, a uh, arbitrary normal level of growth hormone. And uh, I think none of us are very comfortable with the current criteria for defining growth hormone deficiency, which is conventionally a response of growth hormone to a artificial provocation above a certain defined level. If you're so unhappy with the current ability to diagnose, 
Does that cause you any stress or agony over any moral or ethical considerations in who to treat? Well, of course it does, because I, I think there are some societal issues involved here. It's not a trivial thing to give a youngster uh, daily injections of any, uh, of any medication to begin with. Even though the injection devices have improved considerably from the days when we first started using growth hormone, and it's certainly much less uncomfortable than it uh, than it once was when we used to have to give it intramuscularly, it's now given subcutaneously through some very sophisticated devices. And there are the economic and social costs. Uh, the, the cost of treating uh, children uh, for a year with growth hormone is in the range of uh, fifteen to twenty-five thousand. And that's if you start with a small child, correct? Well, on the lower side with a small child, and the on the upper side with somebody who is in their uh, who is a uh, in their early teens. Uh, one of the justifications that's used for tr- starting to treat early is, in fact, that uh, the the cost is uh, is is much less because it's on a based on a, primarily on a weight basis. But don't uh, you have to continue it through? Well, you do if the youngster is responding. I, I I don't think you certainly don't need to if the youngster is not. And I think most of us have come to the conclusion. We will put youngsters who have severe growth failure, however one defines it, and I'm not going to define it right now, with growth hormone for a period of a year as a trial of therapy. If they respond with a measurable and significant uh, increase in their growth velocity, then we'll say, well, they are responsive to growth hormone, and we will continue them on therapy. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bill Rutenberg. And with me is Dr. Myron Janelle. Dr. Janelle is Professor Emeritus of Pediatrics at Yale University School of Medicine. He was Director of Pediatric Endocrinology from 1971 to 1985. And we have been discussing the use of growth hormone in idiopathic short stature. You said a one-year trial, and... Yeah, I would think we would regard a one-year trial. Uh, Some might use a shorter period of time. I think we need almost a year before we can make a determination that the growth hormone is or is not effective in improving growth velocity. Now, there are a number of uh, of variables that one has to consider in that. Uh, For example, if a youngster is in the midst of uh, sexual development, you have a confounding factor of the growth uh, improvement that occurs naturally with adolescence. So it's sometimes difficult under those circumstances to separate out the effect of the growth hormone from the natural effects of sexual maturation. So optimally, if I am going to put a youngster on growth hormone who by testing does not have classic growth hormone deficiency, I much prefer to do this before they show any signs of sexual development because uh, otherwise it's very difficult for me to determine uh, whether it's the growth hormone or the sexual development. Now, mind you, that's entirely different than a teenager who, uh, when we test, has evidence of growth hormone deficiency. But as I said, the standards for what represents growth hormone deficiency are pretty artificial. I have a couple of questions. One is that when you were talking about cost, one of the controversies is who should bear the burden of the cost? Should it be you and me through our insurance premium? Should it be the government? Should it be the family who wants to take their small child and make them bigger. What's the current thinking there among pediatric endocrinologists? Oh, I don't think we think about it. I mean, our job is not to <laughs> our job is not to not to figure out the. Uh, our job the, is the not global. to wonder why, just to do or die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, well, that's a cop out, and I'll acknowledge it. Uh, uh, but you know, I think we could ask the same question about a lot of therapies that are used for uh, what are very, very uh, soft. 
outcomes. I, I would put uh, a treatment for uh, uh, hyperactivity disorder within that category. Uh, there certainly are youngsters who clearly have a, uh, a behavioral disorder that is improved by the use of, uh, of medication, but there are also a large number of youngsters who are somewhat equivocal. Yeah, my father used to just cuff me upside the head. Yeah, well, <laughs> right. I mean, that's the old that's the old fashioned therapy. Yeah. Um, my other question, although I have a lot of them, but recombinant uh, human growth hormone has been around for over twenty years. Yes. Why don't we have an evidence based guideline in this era of everything has to be evidence based? Well, we do to some extent. I mean, I think the, the, what I've sort of recited to you, I think, is at least the consensus. The standard evidence that one likes is a double-blind controlled trial. And as you can imagine, accomplishing a double-blind controlled trial in which you would have subjects treated with some sort of placebo or not treated at all compared to a group that is treated for a substantial long period of time to be able to make definitive results is not an easy thing to do. And the one controlled trial that was done was quite controversial. It was conducted by the National Institutes of Health. They uh, selected youngsters who were prepubertal, and they, uh, the intention was to alternate uh, them with uh, uh, active growth hormone and inactive uh, substance, uh, uh, which required basically half of the group to get injections of an inert substance, salt water. That was highly controversial. In fact, there was a national review of, the, uh, of that protocol in which I served uh, before the protocol went forward because of concerns about the ethics of this type of study. Even so, when this was done, it was done using the conventional dosage in those days in the 80s, which was three times a week. And by the time the study was completed and published, we were already using daily doses of growth hormone. One of the controversies regarding dose is what the results should be. People say that the final height, it's poorly defined, the documented measures of therapeutic success are somewhat variable and nebulous. What should a parent and a child expect when starting daily growth hormone injections? Well, you know, here's the problem. Typically, when we treat, we will make an estimate of the final adult height, and this is based on interpretation of the bone age and uh, some standard prediction tables that allow us to predict out an adult height. As I tell families all the time, uh, th this sounds very scientific, but it's like predicting the weather. And predicting the weather is very scientific, but you do far better predicting tomorrow's weather than you do next month's weather. Well, yeah, I use the farmer's almanac all the time. In terms of the kind of weather we're going to have in September, it's probably as good as anything <laughs> the scientists can have you. But that's the rub. Somebody who comes to me with a six-year-old uh, youngster who has been at the bottom of their first-grade class, who's concerned about their growth, is very interested in what their predicted height is. Well, yes, it's uh, they're going to be 5 feet plus or minus uh, 12 inches. Do you treat to a normal height or the maximum height? Well, there's, kind of, there, there's a difference of opinion on that. Uh, frankly, I let the youngsters decide. When they reach a point of what one would regard as a satisfactory height now, I mean, what is a satisfactory height? I don't know that I can define it, but let us just say when they reach a point of what it would be regarded as a reasonable height, but they still uh, are responsive to growth hormone. Uh, I basically tell them. I said, "Well, you know, you're now five foot seven, five foot eight. Uh, your father's five foot uh, whatever. Uh, you, you still have some room to grow. If you want to continue using it, I can't recall the time when they said to me they wanted to stop. By that time, many of them are giving their own injections. Do you have uh, reaction to parental pressure to put a child on growth hormone? Oh, 
children quite a bit, quite a bit, especially 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 for youngsters who are very athletically talented, but who happen to be relatively modest in terms of their size compared to their peers. And a number of family instances uh, in which uh, there have been differences between siblings or half siblings, and uh, uh, some youngsters who were uh, really, uh, from my point of view, average, certainly average uh, height, but who were highly skilled in some sports where their trainers were told the families they would be national class. If they were uh, six foot two or something like that, and yeah, you know, the pressures in in that, in that type of environment are, are are considerable. Well, time has once again flown by. I want to thank Dr. Janelle, who has been our guest, and we have been discussing controversies in the use of growth hormone in children with idiopathic short stature. I am Dr. Bill Rutenberg. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions. Send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. I wish you good day and good health.